Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. For many years now, Kendall F. Wiggin has been one of the most important champions for history in Connecticut. But at the end of 2019, Ken will be stepping down after 21 years as Connecticut State Librarian. In a revealing interview, I sat down with Ken for a wide-ranging discussion about his agency's complex role in preserving the state's past, the effect of the internet on historical research in libraries, the role of Connecticut history in public education, his successes and regrets, some advice for his successor, and more. It's a candid interview with a Connecticut history icon coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. At the end of this year, Kendall F. Wiggin is retiring as the State Librarian of Connecticut, a position he's held since October 1998. Ken is only the 10th State Librarian in the 150-year history of the State Library. And thanks to the internet, He's guided the library through one of the greatest periods of change and transformation in its history. Wigan came to Connecticut from New Hampshire, where he also served as that state's librarian for eight years. Ken has served on many boards and commissions at both the federal and state levels, and he's a past chair of the American Library Association's Legislative Committee. In addition to his tireless efforts on behalf of the state's many libraries, those of us in history know Ken for the leading role he's played in advancing the cause of history and heritage at every level of state involvement. Ken has been one of, if not the go-to person, others turn to when an important matter involving state history comes to the fore. He's one of the people I most admire in this state, so I couldn't, Ken, let your retirement pass by without taking this time to come talk to you about your work and accomplishments and what you see as the challenges and opportunities facing Connecticut's history communities in the years ahead. Thanks for being on Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you all for having me. So, 21 years as Connecticut State Librarian. Has it been the job you thought it would be when you came here in 1998? Actually, I think it's better than what I thought when I came here. Um, I knew that I didn't know everything (laughs) that I was gonna be responsible for. Uh, When I've been in New Hampshire, the State Library uh, had a more defined role. Uh, One of the things that intrigued me about coming here was the fact that it had the state archives, public records, uh, the museum, and so much more. And those were things that I don't profess, didn't profess to have a lot of knowledge on. So I had a lot of learning to do when I got here, but I really enjoyed it. You have so many different areas that you have management responsibility over. It's It's a tough job. You're only the 10th state librarian Connecticut's ever had. Tell people who don't know about the library system a little about the library's history. It's fascinating. So the state library started out mostly as a collection of law books held by the Secretary of State, and they would be moved between the state capitals. So when the legislature was meeting down in New Haven, the books all went down there. And then when they came back to Hartford, they all came back here. And eventually... The library was set up in the old state house. The first state librarian was only here for a year. And then after that, um, we had state librarians who were, by and large, running an operation that was still very geared toward legal materials, starting to collect some legislative materials. But it had a fairly narrow focus in the early days. 
by the time the century changed, we had uh, George Goddard had become state librarian, and George had a great vision for what state libraries should be. He was very active nationally, meeting with other state librarians. He visited the Library of Congress. So he had a vision of how the modern world was moving, and he had an opportunity to be a key person in the building of the current State Library and Supreme Court building. It was his vision. He had, um, as a young man, been at the Chicago World's Fair, had been, I think, very impressed by the Beaux-Arts Arts architectural style, and wanted to see that replicated here. Uh, but he also had a lot of innovations in the building. Uh, it had a central vacuum in you know, system. It had an early form of air exchange. It wasn't air conditioning, but it was close to it. The building was built to be fire resistant. Many of what looked like wooden columns are actually metal painted to look like wood. And so he had this wonderful new building. And once he got it, uh, he was able to start collecting uh, a lot of history. It was also the time uh, when there was a lot of focus on our colonial history, you know, early 1900s. So he began uh, really to expand the scope of the State Library collections. Um, I'd like to say he was a benevolent hoarder. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all librarians. <laughs> we're, we're very lucky that we have a lot of what he got. It was a little scattered at times, but it, it really forms a basis for what we have today. And he did a lot of work. He, um, you know, and the, the high technology of his time was photostatting. Um, and so he began to... Uh, if he couldn't get the papers to be donated to the library, he would photostat them and give the originals back. So we have a large collection of material. And then microforms came along after that. But the photostatting was like the technology of the time. It was interesting. I just did an entry on Goddard for Today in Connecticut History, and it was fascinating to study this guy. He really was a kind of force of nature during his era. And he, you may not know this, he moved the library over from the state capitol to the new building on the 10th anniversary of the day he was hired. He was very into, you know, that kind of thing, anniversaries and, and dates of things were important to him. And then later, after George passed away, he was one of the only, he was the only state librarian to lay in state. Um, <laughs> his funeral was held here. Then in the early 60s, the federal government started supporting uh, public libraries and it was first federal funding for libraries. And each state had to have what was called the state, libra uh, state library agency to administer the funds. And so there was a little discussion, shall I say, in Connecticut as to who was going to do this. Because at the time, public libraries came under the Public Library Commission, which was in the Department of Education. And they had been working with public libraries since about the early 1890s. Um, and so there was some state support in those days for public libraries. And so, long story short, it ended up under the state library. And so that expanded the mission of the state library considerably. And in between, the state archives had become a reality. Public records uh, were taking more of a, an important role. So the state library began to grow exponentially. And of course, since you've come here, the internet has become this huge factor in all of our lives. When you started as state librarian, only 41% of Americans ever went online, and of the 57% who'd never gone online, I checked this out with Pew, eight out of 10 didn't think they were missing anything. Did you know when you came here that the internet was gonna be as big a change maker as it has been? So let me just back up a little. Um, when I 
started in New Hampshire, um, one of the first things I did uh, was send a, a memo to my reference department asking about this thing called the internet. And I still have today the response from the reference department trying to explain to me what the internet was. <laughs> um, I, I think we were beginning in those days to have some inkling of what it could do, but I think by the time I came here, we were beginning to realize, okay, we could have this thing. It wasn't even, a websites weren't even, I mean, we were talking about a gopher. The federal government was starting to look at this, how do you uh, put information up online? And we didn't know a lot about that, but we, I think the library community uh, could visualize all the things we could do, at least to share information. I, I think the public use of it was you know, not in the early thinking, but how as institutions could we share resources? How could we get more information out? So, so you started out thinking, how can we as an institution take advantage of this? And right. now it's become the dominant change agent for many people. How did you as a state librarian shepherd all the agencies you have supervision over to manage this new technology? That's a really good question. We had committees here um, in the library to start working at it. We also were active um, with the state's first website uh, committees because we brought the skill set that libraries have in how to organize information, which is still key. I mean, the Internet isn't organized. People organize it. And I think we began to realize that. So we were looking at different fronts. It was how to um, present the state library on the Internet, how to have people begin to see what we have very basic stuff at first. The other aspect was we began to realize this is a way to deliver information. So digitization was coming about. And digitization has changed a lot um, over time. Uh, in the early days, uh, I think we made an effort to really you know, take our time. It wasn't just you know, scanning the, the document or imaging it, it was also creating all this metadata, and we treated it much like a book. So we'd sp spend a lot of time on one item, and then you begin to realize you have millions of items, and how are you going to do this in a more efficient manner? So the way we do things has changed a lot, but there's still concern about making sure people can find that. The other thing is now managing expectations. We will never have everything in the state library collections online. Some of it we can't anyway because of restrictions, but some of it, it just because just you can doesn't mean you should. And so we've had to begin looking through the collections to figure out what's most important, what should we get out there, what are priorities. So because we're you know strapped for resources, we have to keep prioritizing that. But we've partnered with Ancestry over the years. We've partnered with FamilySearch over the years and others to help us get digitization done. So it, it's been a joint effort. Have there been any major either innovations or moments along the way where you're saying, wow, the library is really changing because of this? Yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, where George had the photostat machine, we have these really super cool scanners. A lot of, I mean, it's, it's mostly digital capture now, but um, they're really like changing the way we do things. And I think they've allowed us to put um, more content out there. I think there's also a greater awareness by people um, are becoming more aware of what we have, which has actually driven more people to visit. <laughs> um, by putting finding aids and other things online, people say, oh, you know, and they either, you know, 
contact us electronically or they come in personally and, and use the collections. I suspect most people don't realize how big a role the state librarian and the state library plays in preserving, promoting, inspiring, and educating people about Connecticut history. You really are one of the fundamental histori historical institutions in the state. Tell us about some of the programs and initiatives that are centered in the state library system. Yes, one of the things we are not, we're not really historians. We are the, the collectors and the keepers of the raw material of history. So all those primary source materials, um, we are always actively looking for and expanding. Um, we've also begun to focus using centennials and celebrations and anniversaries to focus on things. And so this past several years, we've been doing this. The World War I centennial gave us an opportunity to both look at our collection, which is one of the largest state collections of information about our state and what our state did in World War I. Of any old Governor of any, Marcus Holcomb, right? This is true. So we are one of like four states that did a uh, survey of all of the service people who came back from World War I. You know, the joke is George Goddard stood down at the docks and handed out the form to people. But, but it, it, it gave us a great insight into that. And then what we've done over the last several years, one of my staff members, Christine Pitsley, um, who really got into this, uh, we went out and did digitization days at libraries and historical societies, letting people bring in their story. Because much of what we have in the collection is the government's story. Um, but adding that personal story. So we had letters and things from people's personal collections, many of which were donated here, or we digitized them so we can make them available. One of the really cool things we did was to engage a group of students to learn more about history. So Christine worked on this project, which I you know, supported, which was called Digging into History. And through an essay contest, we ended up with 15 uh, high school students from around the state who traveled to France this year uh, spent three weeks over there uh, clearing out and reconstructing one of the trenches that Connecticut soldiers had fought in during the Battle of Seshbray. So that was a very cool, trying to bring current day awareness to students about their history. But as part of that, they did a lot of research onto a soldier for from Connecticut. Who, for people who don't know, Seshbray was the first major American battle in World War I, and it pitted this, this group of really raw Connecticut soldiers who'd never been in real tough combat against Germans' finest troops. And what should have been a route turned out to be a very creditable defense. The Connecticut kids did an amazing job in this battle, and it, it really earned them respect from the regulars and from, you know, people throughout World War I. Seshpray is a very significant battle. So for this generation of Connecticut students to go there and actually be doing archaeology in the trenches where those guys were in such a tight spot, it's really a neat thing. It was a great opportunity for student exchange. They uh, met a lot of uh, French students, and, and it was really wonderful. But some other things in the collection, too. Um, Connecticut was the first state to have done a complete aerial survey. The governor at the time was really into aviation, and so they went out and photographed the whole state. And so the 1934 aerial survey is sort of a base map of the state, and it's very cool. And that was one of our early digitization projects, actually, because there was only uh, a set or two of the negatives left. Uh, we wanted to preserve those. 
Um, we ended up digitizing the whole thing and putting that online. So that's very cool. And then subsequent surveys have gone on as well. This was the relatively early days of aviation, and they literally flew these slow planes over the state, crisscrossing it in a grid and taking very detailed pictures at a relatively low elevation. And I don't remember exactly, maybe you can help me, when they put it on display for the first time, it covered a warehouse size space just laying out the Connecticut map. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. But what's interesting in World War I work we did, we found that we have a whole lot of aerial uh, survey maps from World War One, And we have one actually very cool picture where you can, uh, the photographer was hanging out sort of the window a little bit and you've got a little bit of the plane captured in his photograph. So um, we have this interesting connection to aerial f uh, photography here at the State Library, and which I think is interesting. That 1934 aerial survey of Connecticut is still used a lot, isn't it? It's a base, yes. It was before the hurricane, so you get a view of Connecticut. And then there have been subsequent ones afterwards, so um, you can see all the changes that go on. But they're all housed here now, um, so researchers have one place to come and look. When the probate courts were merged, little thought had been given to what happens to all the records in all those courts that are closing. So because we've always taken in probate court records, we did a big intake of court uh, records um, a number of years ago because they're important to researchers. Uh, Especially family historians, yeah. Family historians, genealogists. Um, they contain a lot of really information. So we've had that kind of record coming into the collection. But we're constantly looking out there uh, for materials. Uh, we had a nice group of documents from the War of 1812 uh, donated to us, which we didn't have. So there's, there's always gaps. eBay is a good friend. Uh, <laughs> you know, you search and you find things, um, and we do that. Um, but it, it's just sometimes it, you even find things that actually you thought were in your collections, this right? Is, this is happens it, occasionally. Um, that has been something that we have to watch for. One of the big changes that's occurred on your watch has to do with the preservation of state records, right? How, as as the world gets bigger and change grows faster, there's just more and more material that seems important to save. But how do you do it? How do you even manage that that fire hose of information that never stops? It's a really good question. And while my predecessors did fairly well with paper documents and, you know, the archives has established policies of what they collect. The Public Records Office establishes retention schedules for how long records need to be kept. And then working with the archives, some things end up permanently maintained. So paper is something we've been working with for a long time. My watch has seen the growth of the digital information. So suddenly we have emails replacing the paper. So whereas people used to write a letter to the governor, some people still do, but the majority of people send email. So the challenge for us, uh, particularly um, Governor Malloy's administration was one of the first that was really into the technology era um, with social media accounts, which we then have to preserve, and all of this new stuff that we had never done before. We've been partnering with the University of Connecticut to create a digital archive because it's challenging and still not totally clear how we're going to save all this electronic information. 
and a lot of it doesn't need to be kept. So we're constantly trying to work on, you know, get rid of that email that says there's a party in the break room at 2 o'clock. We don't need that. You know, that, that is always so risky because I'm, I'm, as a historian, one of my hobbies is to study indexes. And what indexes of books tell you, indexes always reveal the subjects that people at the time thought were important. And if you just look at this, uh, a book on the same subject 50 years apart and go to the indexes, you will see how things that were interesting in one era are completely irrelevant in the next, but things that didn't seem to matter at all in the earlier era become for, you know, of foremost importance later. I don't know how you make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, the archivists have, I think, some good policies they've looked at. And, but again, sometimes you just take things because you think they may have some value. So years ago, they were taking in personnel files from the state police, and it was decided by the archive staff, let's keep some of the personnel files of the first women or you know, other ethnic groups that have become uh, state troopers. How do you, how do you, you know, that may be a, a point of, well, let's, we can't keep it all. Um, we don't need to, but there's some that we do. So we sample things, and we decide to have a sampling of that. Um, but it becomes challenging, and, you know, there's just so much, you know, we're moving to electronic state government, which is, you know, is a good thing. It improves people's access to information. Our challenge is to make sure that the older material can be accessed. Um, most state agencies are focused on the present, so they want the most current information to be out there. But you never know when you may need something from 10 years ago. I had a situation years ago where uh, some attorneys were, there was a case going on, and they needed a copy of the commercial driver's manual from a particular year. We didn't have one. I don't know why we didn't have one, but we didn't have one. Motor vehicle didn't have one. We finally found one by going to uh, the Wayback Machine, let you go look at Way. Uh, <laughs> so we, we found their website for that year, and lo and behold, there was a copy of it on their website. Lots of so legal issues about So you went to an archive of web pages. We did. <laughs> we did. So it, it's a challenge to know that and, and to keep pace with it and... You know, we're the people that have, you know, that keep reminding people that our past is as important as our future. And, you know, part of our slogan is, you know, preserving the past to inform the future. So we do have to make those decisions, and we can't keep everything either. What's the best way to make sure you never miss an episode of Grading the Nutmeg? Well, if you use a smart speaker like Alexa or Google Home, all you have to do is say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. That's right. Just say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. And in seconds, our latest episode will stream over your smart speaker. Of course, you could embellish with a little something like, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast on iHeart. And that would work too. Anyway, you say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Your smart speaker should connect you to the latest Connecticut history story on Grading the Nutmeg. It's so simple, even a child can do it. They play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Play the Nutmeg podcast. Here's the $64,000 question, it seems to me. Are we in making the decision to digitally preserve 
information using certain technologies today, locking those in as the formats of the future, or what's going to happen to all this information when the technology goes on to the next generation? I'm thinking of all those five and eight inch floppy disks that we started the computer age with that are now mostly meaningless. We got them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you have uh, anything to play them on or the, to use them? Well, on? and actually, you know, that's why we do keep some old equipment. And there are some vendors out there that, you know, realize that people need to transfer things. I mean, we've transferred things from film to VHS, VHS to CD, whatever. That goes on. But it is a challenge. And, you know, the integrity of the files yeah, is always... Yeah, and every time you do that, there's got to be a filtering process, always too, an, right? Always an issue. Um, we're trying to build a repository, and I mean, we're not the only people in the world doing this. Uh, you know, a lot of archivists and others are involved in this, but, you know, will we be able to move to the next version of PDF? Will we be able to, and we already know some formats are already so out of date. A number of years ago, I attended a program at the uh, National Archives. They were faced with all kinds of uh, proprietary software they had all these great um, maps, if you will, uh, electronic digital maps uh, that NASA had taken on various space probes. But nobody <laughs> could look. They had the files. They didn't know what to but do with them. But nobody could open So they, had a, they brought in a lot of people to, to backward engineer things so that they could look at those. I mean, in theory, bits and, you know, you can always look at them at some point. But it is, you know, it is a concern. And trying to get things into standard formats is the best we can hope for. And yeah. some things degrade more than others. We have also concerned about, you know, the provenance of things. And so we acquired some a fancy new uh, soft forensic software system that allows us to access Governor uh, Malloy's drives from his, you know, the, from the uh, administration's drives, uh, without writing anything to them or corrupting any of those files, because wow. that's something you know. When you open up a file, you've added some new metadata to it. We don't want to do that. So, those are like things people don't think about, but my staff thinks a lot about, and I think are doing some great work in trying to make sure that, you know, we're going to be as good. 50 years from now in producing our digital information as we are uh, with our paper files. Has the pace um, of change in technology, is it increasing or is it stabilized somewhat? It, it's increasing in that, you know, there's all these new apps to do things. I think the core stuff is still fundamental, but how people access information and their expectations on being able to use whatever their latest, you know, app is to get at stuff. That's a challenge for government. It's a challenge for anybody making information out there. And it's not going to get a lot not better, get a lot I don't easy. think. One of the things you've been a real champion of a state librarian is the teaching of Connecticut history in our state schools. <laughs> Do you think we've made progress in that area? I think we've raise some consciousness over it. But I do think that it's something that I, you know, I will continue to kind of pursue as well. I just think it's a fundamental piece. I mean, I know teachers will tell you that, well, we do touch on that when we're teaching this or that. But I think the state's history is so important. And we're a state of immigrants, so there's constantly people coming into our state that need to, to know more about our state. And I think the more they knew about our state, the more they would be you know, happy to be here. And I think that um, assuming that Connecticut history is being taught is not, a, you know, you can't make that assumption. And so I think that 
just trying to, and it could be brought in if you're doing an economics class, look at the industry in Connecticut. Look at all of the things you could bring into that conversation, but it's about Connecticut history. So how do we embed Connecticut history? Not just require, I've got to you know, read Walt's newest book or whatever. Um, oh, I think that should be required. <laughs> but, and, and, and you and I both know there isn't really a good modern history of Connecticut, right. so that's another problem. But I, I do think that we have we could through the legislature make it clearer in a state that doesn't have a prescribed <laughs> curriculum for anything um, and we don't tell school districts what to do but i think incenting school districts uh, to really think about teaching both their local history which is as much a part of connecticut history as the state's history but getting that embedded in what these kids are learning we've certainly seen in the new curriculum frameworks the desire to do that and uh, an expressed intention to do that but really implementing it is the test and it's mm -hmm. hard and, and I'm one of those people who is looking forward to some extent to your retiring because <laughs> I already know you've picked certain things you want to work on when you're done and um, it'll be great to have you able to focus on them. Another issue of real importance to history researchers is access to historical records a debate that's often focused on medical records of people from many years in the past. Now, why has this been such a contentious issue? So a little background first. The State Archives collections, um, there are things in the collection that are restricted by, for various reasons. We certainly are not going to give out people's Social Security numbers. Those are protected, and we do a lot of redacting when we make things available. And there are some things that by statute have been closed for periods of time. But what we're finding is that there are, as time goes on, there's a lot of records people would like access to that had different restrictions, and sometimes we question what those restrictions are. What specifically has happened is the State Library, the State Archives does hold a lot of information from all state agencies, and those included state hospitals over the, over the course of the history of the state. And we may have registers of who was admitted to a state hospital, and there may be an indication next to them of some why they were admitted. A condition. In or... theory, that's a medical record. Or there may be the minutes of the trustees of one of the institutions, and they may have talked about a patient in there. That's a medical record. So there are all these areas. But I think when you think about, historians, I think, want to talk more about the history from a personal standpoint. I mean, you, you, we can do numbers, and you've always been able to go in with permission from the various agencies involved, whatever records they are. Let's say it's mental health. You can go in and do statistical work. If you've got a legitimate research you know, question, you can go in and do statistical reporting. But the historians, and started in World War, uh, started in the Civil War with Matt Washauer and his students at Central State University wanting to know more about these soldiers who came home from the war because uh, post-traumatic uh, stress is not something new. We just call it different things. So he started looking at Civil War records, and that opened up a can of worms and got a lot of pushback. He was able to see those records. Students were able to use those records. But not too long after that, legislation was passed, very last minute, very controversially, that basically closed all these records forever and ever. And if the and we may not even have a reason now, but if there's one in the future, it'll be added. So this has put a crimp on things. And, and I just feel that, you know, now we've got World War I. We've been studying World War I. There are a lot of World War I soldiers who may have been in a state institution. 
Uh, it'd be nice to learn a little bit more about them. So we may have everything up to the point they went in the service, their discharge papers. Then we lose them for a little bit, and then we get them back in later in life because they may not have stayed in the institution their whole life. So what, what's wrong with reporting on that gap? And right. so I know uh, the mental health community and I have not seen eye, eye on this. I mean, I feel that, um, and we've offered 100 years after the person has passed. Um, the federal government says 50 years uh, for medical records is sufficient time. That at that point, it's more important to know about the person and what they went through than to worry about the privacy of the family. Um, you know, it, it was very interesting and something that, that brings together two of the things we talked about. I was doing some family history and trying to sort out probate records, which the challenge because of the way probate courts have moved from county to county and merged over time is, is that's a challenge in itself. But in following a probate trail, I found out that my great-great-grandfather had been, the court had ordered that he be sent to Middletown as a patient in the Connecticut hospital, the mental hospital there, and he was there for a couple of years. That had been a family secret, but I thought, I'm going to go find this out. So I pulled out my state historian card, and I wrote my letter, and I wrote the hospital and said, that, you know, there are the records. Anyway, it involved a kind of torturous process of even as the great-grandson of the person finding out what they had and getting access to it, and it was incredibly revealing. It was useful. It, you know, it filled in a lot of gaps in the records, but there was a point when I was asking, when I thought, Somebody was actually trying to bait me to see if I was really who I said I was. And well, and one of the arguments also has been that um, it was poor people who ended up in state hospitals, and is it, it's not fair that their records should be made available when people that went to private institutions um, uh, don't have that. But private institutions can make their records available as well. But, but you just made a good point. A lot of people were put into state hospitals, not because they were poor, but either through court order or families wanted them committed. So commitments are all over the place. My, my other thing is that I think it's important, these are state-run institutions, and part of the reason we collect all of the information we keep about state government is so that the public can know how well their state government is doing. And if you can't look at a lot of this information, you have no idea were these people well taken care of or not? I, I'm not saying they weren't, but I think when you hide all of this, it creates doubt. Indeed. And I think the more we have open records, one of the things that impressed me when I came to Connecticut was the fact that you had such a, a great open records law in this state. And I've seen in the, my 20 years that eroded. More and more times we put restrictions on things, and I can understand some of it, but some of it is done in a way that it, you know, it's like forever. And if that's the case, as a, as why do I keep these things? Yeah, you know? it's just wrong to it do is. that. It um, is. It is bad for the production of knowledge. It's bad for the kind of humanistic understanding of other times. And there is a certain point where I feel badly for my great-great-grandfather, and I probably got some of that gene pool. There are people <laughs> who think... I think I've got a lot of it. But the point is, I'm not embarrassed about his 
mental illness, and we're not supposed to be embarrassed about mental illness, so why not, you know, why not let the sun shine in? I agree with you, and I, and I hope the legislature will, over time, begin to open more records, or at least let the state archives records be open. I can understand if an agency wants to hold some records, but in some cases, there are known, known, even living relatives, and they're holding on to those records, and, and it's like, it just begs the question, why? <laughs> I thought for a minute you were going down the no, 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 no. <laughs> no. So, Ken... You've done this for 21 years, and you've done it really well. Looking back on a generation of state librarianship here, what do you see as your biggest successes? Keeping the agency going. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's been really, I mean, it's been tough. When I was first here, the state's financial situation was better, and we did a lot of, we accomplished a lot of things early on. We have uh, statewide electronic resources, statewide databases, if you will, that are available to every student in the state, private and public you know, schools, high schools, colleges, whatever, um, and the general public. So that's been a way we've really taken a limited amount of state dollars, stretched it, and made all that in, in available. So the development of the Connecticut Education Network, uh, which I was part of that conversation, working with Governor Rell, but expanding the, the resources. So that was a really, I think, a big big important thing. We were able to, we've been able to maintain public library construction funding, which I think has seen a lot of really innovative things happening in public libraries through that program. So, you know, maintaining those, I think, has is, is been a success. I, I think the establishment of the Historic uh, Documents Preservation Fund, over time... For people who don't know that, So, it. yeah, so what happens is you pay a... Uh, a a recording fee on uh, all land recordings, uh, there's a small fee attached. Part of that money is, main, is kept with the town clerk uh, for maintaining their records. Um, part of it comes to the state library, and we re-grant um, about two-thirds of that to communities to do uh, both preservation of town records but also records management. Um, in those towns. And then a por the portion that we keep helps operate some of our work here. And that fund, I think they tell me it's like over 16 million since it was started. It's really been a significant way of preserving uh, at least town records. Um, the state has always had funding, or since I've been here, funding to preserve buildings and historic structures, but no money really to preserve contents. And while we still can't do that, we can at least preserve the, the printed, you know, the written record of those towns. So that's been a really, I think, an, it was a great bipartisan effort. Every town benefits from it. And I think I've it's, talked to town clerks in several towns, and they really talk about it as a game changer. And there really is just an improvement in the way things are organized, the way things are preserved and, and protected in a lot of places. It's a, it's a great program. Well, and when you think about the land records that are held by our town clerks, I mean, that basically is people's wealth. All of your land, I mean, if you can't prove you own your property, that could be very hurtful to you. So maintaining those records, we've done a lot of work uh, through the fund to make sure those records are stable and there. So yeah, it's been a great thing. Well, and as a historian of early Connecticut, those are early town records are, you know, often the only real source of information about what was going on in the colonial period. So any regrets? Are there, are there things you really wanted to do and they just either didn't work or couldn't do it? 
I guess we always have regrets. I think one of my regrets is we were never able to get uh, the funding we needed to really revamp the museum. We've been able to, and I was talking to the museum staff, um, we've, we've been able to have a pretty aggressive acquisitions um, program going. We have um, private funds, uh, funds from the sale of things years ago, that are able to allow us to buy. So we're keeping the, the collection is, is great. What we've not done a great job in is exhibiting our collections. This is a really interesting conundrum, isn't it? The, the, the state has an endowment, but that endow- or the museum has an endowment, but it's restricted to acquisitions. Correct. So, which is good, because it does keep these wonderful things coming into the collections, but it's really hard to fund their display and the, the public engagement with well, it. Well, I mean, it's been frustrating to see the state funding museums other than their own state museums. And, and I'm not the only state museum that's been lacking for support. And you would think that they would want their flagship museums to shine. And that has been a frustration to me and probably one of my regrets that I wasn't able to get the funding that we really needed for that. And I just think there's things we could have done, you know, the, the cutbacks like in our support for public libraries, you know, there's some services there that, you know, really need more support than we have the ability to support, and, and that's unfortunate. I am very pleased and proud that we've been able to build a new ebook platform in our state. We've been resisting the ebook publishers and their price wars, um, and we're starting to roll out this new app that the public can, you know, hopefully get more access to a lot of, and we're building a, a large state ebook collection. But... No, I don't have a lot of, re- you know, really a lot of regrets. You know, it's always things, a colleague of mine said one day, you're never going to get all the projects done you want to get done before you retire, and I'll never get them all done. Indeed. But. You know, one of the things that I and others around the state have most admired about you is your remarkable ability to handle the changing political tides in the state. Uh, you've served governors from both parties in good times and bad. Through it all, it seems that the state library has fared relatively well compared to uh, a a kind of economic crises many agencies have faced over the years. And we all really wonder, how'd you do it? (laughs) This this is not an apolitical state, but you seem to have managed to please everybody. Well, I think what I've tried to do is what my predecessor had done. The, The state library is there to serve all three branches and all of the citizens of our state. And it's not a political thing. I mean, we've tried to be uh, responsive to both sides of the aisle, work with them all. I think, and I think our public libraries are deemed the same thing. They, they are there to serve democracy. And I think the state library um, has been able, since it was established in 1854, to be maintain its stand, you know, it's a standalone agency, and, and through all the consolidations and all of the other effort, I think governors and legislators have seen the value of let's leave the state library alone. Have they cut us? Sure. Have we come up with some creative <laughs> ways? Uh, yes. But I've also, I mean, and I've been honest with, I mean, I always tell the legislature how it is. If you do this, we're going to lose this money, or these are the service cutbacks. I mean. I went through that whole, you know, let's do more with less. That was an interesting time. I'm at the, you know, I, we do less with less. Yeah. That's the yeah. reality. But what we do is targeted to be, have the most impact we can have. 
and to continually be looking toward the future so that we're not passing up opportunities um, if we can help it. And, you know, I've just, you know, I've always, you know, enjoyed working with legislators and had good conversations with them and, you know, done well, what I can do. It's an art form and it's, you, are, you are a master at it and I think Thank all you. of us admire it. So, a month, six weeks from now, you're, you're, I, I, you'll never turn in your library card, but I don't <laughs> know what the equivalent of hanging up your spurs is. But let me ask you this. If on the last moment of your last day as state librarian, you were to take a sheet of paper, put it on your desk, and write one sentence to leave in your desk drawer as a piece of advice for the next state librarian, what would it be? Wow, that's an interesting question. Uh, can I have a long sentence? <laughs> <laughs> you can have a paragraph. I think it's respect the staff that you have um, because they are the ones who do all of the work, and they have great minds, and they have great ideas. What they need is someone who will support them and guide them, and that's what I've tried to do. And I think that, um, and listen well. You have listened well, you have guided well, and having worked with you for 15 of those 21 years or a little more than that, uh, you, you, you've been an inspiration to all of us. And the state owes you a lot. Ken, thanks very much. Thank you, Walt. It's been my privilege. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Kendall F. Wigan and the Connecticut State Library. For more great Connecticut podcasts, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app. Or just say, Alexa or Google, play Grading the Nutmeg podcast on your smart speaker. For more great Connecticut history stories, read or subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.